eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The loudest, the biggest, the brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. He, he took one of the bats we got in like fourth grade at Yankee Stadium and like played in Little League with it. And I remember it breaking. <laughs> he like sliced one and it just snapped open in like shards and it was all like blue paint crap on the inside. Constantine Maroulis has already lived a life and this guy's not even 50 years old yet. Back in 2004, right around when the Yankees blew that 3-0 lead against the Red Sox and the ALCS, sorry bud, he became a television sensation as Constantine from American Idol. You know, before that, he was the lead singer of a rock band after finishing sixth place, though, in the season that crowned Carrie Underwood. His career and notoriety exploded. The guy's a New Yorker, born in Brooklyn, raised in Bergen County, New Jersey, and a hardcore Yankee fan and Giants fan who remember the craziness of that day at the old stadium in the Bronx. After Idol, he launched a solo music career, selling out shows in New York and across the East Coast, and then getting into acting with a star turn and rock of ages on Broadway, earning him a Tony Award nomination for Best Acting in a Male Lead. Now, he's got another huge gig on Broadway called Rock and Roll Man, which opens up later on this month, playing the lead of legendary Cleveland DJ Alan Freed, who coined the term rock and roll, brought rock and roll to the masses, and is a huge reason the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland. Like a great athlete who has performed and succeeded under the bright lights of New York, from the Garden State Plaza around the holidays to the forgotten role players in pinstripes, this guy's got stories. This is Constantine Maroulis's New York accent. Constantine, how you doing? Brother, what's up, man? DA, definitely a big fan. Thank you for having me. Oh, very kind, man. Thanks so much. And look, as a sports audience here at a sports talk host myself, it is cool to see you rocking a Yankees cap as a native New Yorker. You grew up in Brooklyn, I believe. And so give me the roots on becoming a Yankee fan. 
there was no choice. There was no choice for me. Uh, definitely born in Brooklyn, born at Park Slope at Methodist Hospital a uh, long, long time ago in a galaxy far away. And uh, my family's mainly from Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Uh, we left Brooklyn when I was pretty young, moved to North Jersey, uh, predominantly grew up there in the suburbs of Upper Bergen County. Uh, for those that are familiar with the 201, uh, a little town called Wyckoff, uh, then basically lived my whole adult life back in Manhattan uh, for the last 20 years or so. And more recently, I've been raising my daughter out in the suburbs again, got a got a little house in the in the country. So uh, my roots with the Yanks. Wow. You know, I have probably 25 or 26 first cousins on just, I think, my mother's side. Wow. And there, there, yeah, it's nuts. There was no choice. My cousin, uh, Gus, uh, who was also a Constantine, he was he was a big Yankees fan. He instilled that on my brother, who's 11 years older than me. Of course, my parents grew up in Brooklyn, so they were Dodgers fans originally. But then they, you know, then they switched over to the Yanks and leapt out of the television at me from I you know I'm, I'm old enough to remember a little of the late 70s stuff I mean I'm a toddler at that point um the 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 excitement of the late 70s teams and the Bronx Zoo and my brother loving Thurman Munson and whatnot and the baseball cards being around and then forget it the 80s Yankees are just everything to me Ricky Henderson of course Don Mattingly and uh you know the boss and just the allure of it um it was like, it was just part of who we were in, in the Marulis house, for sure. Every baby of the 70s or 80s who's a Yankee fan knows Donnie Baseball. And I feel like every single one of you guys wants Don Mattingly in Cooperstown to the Hall of Fame. I'm sure you had the 84 Tops uh, Don Mattingly card, which became iconic, or a poster on your wall, you know, him with, with the machine gun. I mean, I just, I feel like I can envision your childhood loving Donnie baseball back in the mid eighties. The hitman for sure. Yeah. Uh, the mustache, the, uh, pushing the limits of the hair, um, uh, the hair rule with a little bit of the mullet winged out in the back and just the, you know, lazy sort of lefty stance and the great glove at first. Um, uh, you know, obviously he was hindered by injuries a bit there and, um, that shortened his career a great deal, but what a baseball player, just an incredible hitter and um, seemingly a, a great teammate, you know? And, and I think that's, I think that's, um, I think it's obvious in, in the, in the career he's had post his playing career as a coach, um, you know, his, his knowledge for the game and baseball IQ, just huge, but um, we could, we could use them these days. I mean, I love Rizzo for sure, but um, you know, it would have been nice. I remember rooting for that wild card team to really get through and hopefully, um, you know, give him a chance to get a ring, but it didn't happen. You know, they had, man, it's funny when we look back, if that wild heart card existed in the, in the eighties, um, I think all, all those teams, the Yankees would have had that would have been in the playoffs. And yeah, they didn't have the pitching because the boss kind of traded them away, but they had a closer at one point. It was great. Had some good journeyman sort of relievers. But, you know, when you have Winfield, Henderson, Mattingly, then Jack Clark and, you know, Pagularulo and some really good role players, um, they would have had a shot. You know, that would have been pretty cool. 
number one, you're spot on. We had a lot of second-place Mets and Yankees teams throughout the 80s. If the wild card existed, it would have been interesting. Second of all, now I know you're a real New Yorker to Yankee fan when you cite Mike Pagliarulo. If you can do a PAGS reference, then you have cleared the hurdle of super fandom around these parts. So you, you've earned the blue check mark around here. You know, it's amazing because if you turn back the clock to when you went to American Idol, when you're being introduced by Ryan Seacrest for the first time, he cites the fact that you're in a rock band that could be kind of described as like Black Sabbath-like. And I, I think about I think about a guy that was in a rock band that might have been a Black Sabbath type of band spinning forward to becoming a Broadway star. That's a that's a pretty wide range you're able to 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 click off right there. Could you have imagined this type of path when you were in the middle of rock and roll? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I always idolized my brother. He, he did a little of everything growing up from acting and writing and performing in different rock bands and later sort of underground electronic type bands and such. And I was always influenced by so many different music styles. I always grew up with musical theater since I was very young. Um, we used to watch West Side Story together as a family. My mother would point out the Greeks she knew from Brooklyn um, in the original film, the original film with uh, Natalie Wood. And uh, those are the few real strong memories I have of the five of us, my brother and sister and I, my parents being together because they're they're much older than me and my, my brother and sister. So it always was very real to me, the musical theater thing and the acting. And Conversely, I always just was good with a microphone standing in front of the band. It wasn't like one of those theater kids that like thought he could sing in a band. Like it really kind of came naturally. I gravitated towards classic rock and the great front people like Jim Morris and Janis Joplin. Um, you know, obviously the Beatles and the Stones and the great Woodstock era of music. I love the Grateful Dead. I was a big deadhead. I got into the early days of Fish and all of that. So I just always had, and I loved books and and theater and literature and stuff. So I and and clearly sports. I was obsessed with. So just kind of um, all over the place with that. And I think for me, um, it's just it's really ultimately about like storytelling. And um, I think my band at that point in the late '90s, yeah, we were sort of doing this kind of grunge meets um you know limp biscuit type of thing or incubus type of thing and it probably didn't even flex all of the things that i could do but that was the sound of the band that i was in when i auditioned for idol i also had just been in rent touring around the world for two years with rent so i was like theater boy and then i'm a dark rocker so i think that <laughs> I think that the idol stuff, it was just good TV. And I think Seacrest and the producers kind of were like, all right, the Brooklyn thing is cool right now. Remember, it's almost 20 years ago. Yeah. And um, I think that that was a, a bit of a hook for them to kind of be like, who's this guy? We've never had anything like this. So something like that. Did you ever feel out of place in either one of those two worlds? If you're a, a rocker, in a Broadway world, or if you're a an actor, uh, a thespian, in a rock and roll world? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and thank you. Yes, um, I think that's natural. I think you sort of become synonymous for these uh, bodies of work. 
um, along the way. You know, I was known for to be in Rent for a while. Then it was the Idol thing, and then it was Rock of Ages. And it's like, okay, can you do anything else? It's like, yeah, I can do Shakespeare. I can do Tom Stoppard. I could do a film. Um, it's good to be known as like Constantine uh, from Idol and all of that, but also it can it can it can affect um, people viewing you in a more neutral way and um they sort of typecast you which is which is a good thing as well you know at least people consider you for something but uh you can definitely be typecast and for sure i think some people along the way are like he's not really an actor he's not really a rock singer um and then they then they work with me and then they're like oh okay he can do he really can do both you know later i got to do jekyll and hyde on broadway a, a revival of the 90s frank wildhorn production all reimagined version of it so in a way i really got to do you know i was living that jekyll and hyde life where i had like the theater boy thing and then i you know i sang in chorus as a kid and in high school i competed in competitions but then i was playing you know in the city as a teenager in rock bands like trying to get signed and um I was trying to I was trying to do both for sure. And I think all those experiences um, add up and it's great life experience um, playing sports as well. I mean, I, I loved playing sports, but I was never going to be good enough to play at any next level. But I think like the camaraderie, um, you know, all the sort of cliches you learn in sports, they really apply in my work on stage as well. You know, right now I'm I'm, I never leave the stage in this in this new show, but I'm nothing in this show without like an incredible supporting cast. And um, when I do teach like young kids and work with them, young performers, I'm like, be. It's hard to be Derek Jeter. No one gets to be Derek Jeter. It's a once in a million thing. Be Brett Gardner. Be <laughs> somebody that yes. can has longevity that can play a long time that is relied upon that is a leader that you know can sit and then go into the game and play different positions and you know stuff like that so there, there's a lot of sort of parallels with my work and, and sports and i think that goes for a lot of places in life i know when i mentor hand out advice for young broadcasters i oftentimes say the same thing you'll go really far in this business if you've got a great attitude you're easy to work with you support others and you're willing to do anything. Those are all controllables. You know, you might not have the best talent, but if the boss or producers or other people know that you're dependable, good to work with, flexible, and you'll give it your all, then there's always a role for you. So uh, my guess is those are tenants that work in in entertainment and uh, and a lot of the projects that you've probably accomplished as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, it's clear uh, with your work and, and how you've, you know, always um, adapted to whatever the situation is, whether you're jumping in there, you know, subbing in on the big, big shows or or doing whichever. And, you know, I mean, it's 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 not easy to do. And I, I recognize that. And the people the people that know we know um but no i think what you've done is uh is, is wonderful in, in the scene and, and you know i grew up on on new york sports radio uh it's funny everyone's like what do you listen to in the car i'm like sports that's all i listen to <laughs> and you know uh talk i i just 
we grew up with the AM radio on in the house all the time in the kitchen. It was always on. Bob Grant in the in the eighties, my my folks would listen to. It would be on in the kitchen. It would be on in my father's garage. Um, Bob Grant, for those that don't know, uh, was like the pioneer sort of talk show host on the radio. He could be on every day and talk for six hours about anything. And he sort of fancied himself as this moderate guy, but he did say some wild shit over the years. And um, but I'll never forget. And even Howard Stern recognizes him as a huge influence. I mean, the guy could go on all day long, take phone calls. No one ever did anything like that live on the air. Um, and then they basically copied him in every market. Like later with Mike and the Mad Dog, they, they copied that in every market in the in the in the country. Um, so I think, yeah, in this business, you have to pivot, you have to, um, be good at a lot of stuff. Um, it's nice to be great at a couple of things, but I'd rather be just really pretty solid at a bunch of stuff. And I like it that way. I think after idol, you know, I had amazing opportunities. I think if I focused on one thing, just one little thing, like I wanted to have a hit song or something like that, I, you know, I could have definitely just accomplished that, but I had so many things come my way, like from television to acting and Broadway and writing and, you know, touring and producing. And later I had a family and I hear congratulations is due to you. Uh, you guys had a baby recently, didn't you? We did. Thanks so much for saying that. Yeah. Last week we had uh, our first little baby boy, AJ Amendo came into this world uh, last Tuesday. So now I'm, I'm in your, uh, in your zip code and, uh, Boy, it's yeah. a it, it's a mind blowing experience. It's beautiful in a million different ways, but it's a total out of body experience. I often look at AJ and say, "Is that really mine? Is that really my child?" Because this feels like I'm I'm playing a, a role, like I'm I'm Mr. Mom. I'm playing some dad in a 1980s movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, Michael Keaton. Uh, yeah. Uh, be not knocking on the door in his apron any time, any day now. Um, yeah. It's isn't it funny how our, the instincts just kick in. Obviously, our partners and whatnot are, are great help in the family around us if we're lucky to have that or friends. But, um, you know, as dads and such, it just kind of kicks in. You know, it's not stuff you thought about or planned, at least not for me. I didn't read all the books. I didn't. Um, I, I I was touring like so much. I, I was not prepared, but I just was ready when it happened. And she came into my world and, you know, we're very close and I can't believe she's already 12 years old, 12 and a half. She'll be 13 Christmas Eve. So um, we've got a little time left, but uh, it goes fast, man. It goes real fast. I could only imagine. How, how do you handle a Christmas Eve birthday? You want to make sure you honor the birthday, but you also obviously have to deliver Christmas. Oh, man, it's it's not easy because... Um, she's really like the only, um, only child, like in, in my family and, you know, my, my brother and sister are very successful, have great partners, whatnot, um, or spouses, and they just don't have children. So, um, you know, my father passed 10 years ago and, you know, it's just my, my mom out there. And, uh, you know, so we all are so hyper-focused on, on Malena and her mom's family mainly lives on the West coast. So she just gets like smothered. Um, how we handle it mainly is, uh, you know, of course the kids are, are home from school at that point. 
right? They they the latest you'll break from school is like maybe the twentieth, twenty first, or twenty second, or something. So we have to have like an early December uh, birthday party. Ah. So it's one of those things. So she gets the early birthday party. Then she's got the birthday, which she gets more stuff. And then Christmas Eve, both with me, <laughs> then her mom. And you know, we co-parent. So it's she She does pretty well. She does pretty well. She Okay, she cleans up. That's good she to know. That's, that, that's always important. My guess is also on Christmas Eve, uh, on her birthday, you're not allowed to go anywhere near the Garden State Plaza because uh, that is a snarl. <laughs> At the corner of seventeen and four, you don't want to be anywhere near there in the in the month of December. I grew up there because my mother worked at the Macy's for like thirty years. Oh, you know, wow. As soon as we moved to New Jersey, she got a, a gig at the Macy's, and she was running the place by the time she left. And I grew up there. I mean, they would, you know, in the summer. Sometimes me and my 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 best friend, my neighbor, obviously we were psychotic for baseball cards in the eighties and all that. She would bring us to work and we would hang out at the mall all day, but we would just like hang out at the baseball card kiosk, like trading and buying and opening packs and doing all the stuff that the kids are totally crazy for again then. So I grew up at the Garden State Plaza now called Westfield or whatever it is. That's right. Um, But you know, I'm not a point and click kind of uh, purchase person. I, I still go to the mall. I like going to the mall. You know, I'm, I, I love clothes and all that stuff. I'll go like super high end, but then I'll mix it with like a lot of Marshalls, a lot of Macy's, a lot of deals. Nice. My mother would wait till something was like marked down to like 80% off and then drop her 20% on it. And they're like, it's free. It's, it's it. actually, we owe you 10 bucks. You know, like she would wait it out and she had, she had it down. So I, uh, I really grew up with like the whole, you know, Macy's culture for sure. As a baseball card fanatic of the 80s and early 90s, I assume that you collected a few Greg Jeffries rookie cards and Ken Griffey Jr. <laughs> rookie cards, which paid the down payment on your house, right? You probably actually had your first house already paid for through the riches of those two cards. Well, of course, we all thought that Greg Jeffries was going to be. And I remember I remember being upset. I'm like, how did I mess up this guy? You know, and um but it just didn't work out for him or Kevin Moss, did it? Kevin Moss, Moss did that, not, that yeah. didn't I I got I got pages of Moss. Forget <laughs> I got pages like this. And uh the the, the right Griffies are are valuable. The right Griffies are, are nice. Um it was fun. I, I you know, we all know what happened over the shutdowns. We all went through our stuff and we're like watching the last dance. Um, you know, of course the great Michael Jordan uh series that espn did it was amazing and uh and we started going through our old stuff and i'm like oh my god i got all these jordans i got all these rookies i got this i got that i'm rich i'm rich and this is like i, I, I was just cool no one's acting there's no broadway there's no music there's no touring but i got baseball cards i'm buying up more shit like i don't even know what i was doing but it was so fun i gotta be honest it brought like I had a girlfriend at the time. I was like, I, I'm busy. I'm busy tonight. Uh, it was like, I, I'm busy with a, a set of 1987 wax packs. I'm sure you yeah, understand. I got plans. Um, I got stuff to do. I got organizing. I got to, I got to do a lot of, I'm, 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 I'm shuffling. I'm, I'm putting things in, in penny cases, then in hard cases. I've got a lot of Matt Noakes, a lot of Matt Noakes and Kevin Seitzers. I've got to go through go these. Through I got to go through so many of these, uh, 
yeah, there's 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 so much of that stuff. The the um uh Billy Ripken FU car. Oh yeah, you had to have it. You know. And and of course the Menendez brothers on the uh, <laughs> on basketball on the uh, on the oh geez on the Mark Jackson uh, right Mark Jackson yeah they're yeah. sitting front row the Menendez brothers like yeah, they, they like wasted their parents that night probably it's crazy uh, the culture is insane you know it's funny I never gravitated towards the Knicks or the Nets so much mm. I um, fifth sixth grade. Um, a rich neighbor took us to Brendan Byrne Arena to see the Nets play. We sat like courtside, and Michael Jordan. It was probably his rookie year, and we were just like, "Oh my god!" Bouncing around, he was like Spider Man out there. And forget it, we bought the hats, we bought the jerseys, we bought everything, and that was, it was just Bulls, 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 Bulls. And this is like when he had nobody. This is like, you know, this is like the Charles Oakley and. Jordan and before Phil Jackson, certainly before, um, before Scotty and, and Horace Grant and everybody, but those early Jordan years and, you know, he was like this mythical character because they weren't on television every day, you know? Um, so you had to like look up the TV guide, like when are they going to be on TNT or, or one of these, yeah, or watch the Ahmad Rashad Saturday morning show to get a glimpse of him. And I, I was just drawn to it. So I became the psycho Bulls fan from like basically 86 to like 2000. And all my friends hated me for it. Um, they thought <laughs> I was the biggest fair weather fan. And I was, I don't care. this is my team. This is my team. And I don't know, you know, I love the NBA. I love basketball, I played basketball in high school and such. And I'm, I love supporting my high school in Franklin Lakes um they were great they won the whole state tournament this year um nate burleson's kids play on the team so uh wow yeah in in your sort of cbs uh world yeah um and uh yeah they transferred over and um they they're really good players his oldest son is going to go play at his alma mater fo football um in, at uh at reno i believe in university of nevada Anyway, so we love to like go back to that. Everyone's like, you're like this like rock star. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm like a soccer dad living in Wyckoff. That's that's what I am. And I like to come when I'm around. I like to come and watch the football games and watch basketball. And I just, yeah, I just never grab gravitated toward the Knicks and the Nets a little bit, like a little bit. Um, You know, I, I root for them. It was just, and the, I don't think the NBA ever really recovered after, at least after Kobe LeBron, I get it. Once LeBron, the decision, it just it just kind of killed it for me. I, I love Giannis, of course, as a Greek. I, I claim Giannis, you know, but it's the game. It's just not the same for me, you know. If I called you a Greek freak, would you take that as a compliment? <laughs> well, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, let's get back. Definitely. You're bringing back good memories for me because uh, my first time to go to an NBA game, uh, I was in Boy Scouts. And in the late 80s, when we went, the, they definitely were not going to take us to a Knicks game because it was way too expensive. So they took us to Brendan Byrne to go see the Bucks when they were horrible and the Nets when they were horrible. And all I can remember is that we were some of the only ones on the upper deck at Brendan Byrne for that game because they brought my Boy Scout shirt. So that, yeah, Boy Scouts definitely was a, was a free ticket. Um, definitely <laughs> yeah. saw some saw some horrible Yankee teams on a Boy Scout. Um, 
Cub Scout. I was I only I never made it to Boy Scouts. I made it through Cub Scouts, and um, we definitely went to some old Yankee Stadium games with them sitting in the freaking like rafters. Bad day, psychotic. Like, we'll get. Can you imagine them giving twenty, thirty thousand bats out now? That would never happen. Never, never. I was there for Bat Day once at Yankee Stadium. Even though I grew up a Mets fan, my buddies in fifth grade were Yankee fans. So we went there, and I got this little mini bat, and I remember thinking to myself. This is awesome that everybody in the stadium has one of these like little weapons in their hands. Yeah, we had the uh, full size blue ones, and I remember this kid Doug Snow. Oh, full size? Wow. Yeah, they were like, you know, they were probably twenty eight. Yeah, or like you know maybe thirties. Um, and uh, Doug Stokes, he was like this incredible basketball player, this kind of kid that was like six five in like fifth grade, and his he <laughs> and his brothers are from yeah, exactly. He and his brother, uh, both brothers, like dominated the high school basketball and went on to play in college. And he he took one of the bats we got in like fourth grade at Yankee Stadium and like played in Little League with it. And I remember it <laughs> oh, <wow>. breaking. <laughs> he like sliced one and it just snapped open in like shards. And it was all like blue paint crap on the inside. It It, it was just. That, that's like the Wyckoff version of the natural. Instead of yeah. the uh, instead of the the lights exploding, it's the actual bat itself that splinters into blue dust. Uh, yeah. I think this is opposite field single. Yeah, from the left side, he was a lefty. I remember so, um, but uh, yeah, definitely not conducive for uh, you know optimal uh, you know barrel right. barrel barrel percentage <laughs> barrel rates. But, um, you know, those were the good days, you know, for sure. And um, um, just always, always love the sports, you know, always, you know, that it's like sometimes that sense memory as an actor talks about, um, you like pick up your old glove and you, you smell the glove and you're like, you know, this just it just, you're right back to like where you, where you were so many times on the field, you know, picking daisies in the outfield or, um, you know, striking out you know at the wrong time or maybe getting the you know the clutch hit and um just those great feelings for sure and my kid plays sports which is great um it's not for everybody but for me it was a big just a huge part of my life and uh i i stay away from like the dad sports nowadays because first of all these dads they're like crazy and i don't need any part of like fights or like a knee injury you know, or abusing umps, abusing refs. Yeah, stay. You got to stay out of that that game. The worst, the worst. I do enjoy um, a crazy video online or or two. Like you know, Twitter has just changed so much. Whatever. Um, but like, I seem to just stumble into these like fight videos and you know, parents like going nuts <laughs> and like just brawling over like a volleyball match or something. Like horrible. It's like, yeah, what is going on with you? Yeah, that is not good. I, I but, like the fact that you have uh, a real appreciation for radio and for the the sounds that come out of the box, because I, I feel the same way, which must make playing Alan Freed in Rock and Roll Man specifically very pointed and powerful for you. For those that don't know, Freed was a real revolutionary, a pioneer as a DJ, bringing a mass audience to music that was primarily an African-American side of music to a larger audience. And so for you to play that role, it must be really uh, powerful for you since you love that side uh, of, of radio creation. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. It's um, a dream role to play for me. Um, you know, this is the stuff we we long for to create a great um, character like this. Um, certainly, you know, he had a great legacy. Um, he was a flawed man um, and, and sort of forgotten in the in the sort of, um, you know, the story of rock and roll. But there is no story uh, to tell without the contributions of of Alan Freed. Um, he believed in the artists. He became friendly with them and close to them and wanted to elevate them and, and really laid his life on the line. He was a severe alcoholic and a flawed guy that was gone way too soon. He was dead by 43 years old. Wow. Um, and they came after him. They, they made him an example. He didn't play ball. Um, he got caught up in scandals. Um, you know, we sort of get to tell um, a little of, we get to tell all sides of the story. We celebrate the great era, the incredible music, the incredible artistry of the early 50s. Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Laverne Baker, all the great, you know, quintet and quartet acts like the Coasters and the Moonglows, the Drifters, um, Bo Diddley. Um, but we have this original score that's woven in that's very unique to uh, this sort of like catalog musical. Um, it's not usually both. It's not usually the case where you have these great songs, you know, all the ones you know, um, you know, Shaboom, you know, Life Could Be a Dream. Um, you know, you have Great Balls of Fire and Tutti Frutti and, um, you know, all the amazing tunes, um, Jim Dandy and such. But you have this original score that that is reminiscent of the era that helps sort of tie the whole thing together because uh, Alan Freed was not a singer. He was not an artist. The whole show is set Basically, we meet him on his deathbed. He's alone and penniless in Palm Springs, you know, out of a job, out of the out of the game by 43 years old. And uh, we 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 he's he's longing to get back. And it all sort of takes place in this fever dream of his where he's on trial, like for his legacy. And they came after him because he elevated black artists. And at a time when. Really, it was just not cool. I mean, like to to think that our country was, you know, um, at a place not even a lifetime ago where we were segregated. Um, even in big cities like like New York, um, it's 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 surreal. It's surreal. Yeah, to grab the mic and to do these IDs or to talk up a song in this, I learned so much. You know, I've done some radio along the way. I worked at WABC for some time and. Um, a lot with the digital uh, sources and all. And it's been great, man. It's been great to jump into what you guys do. And, you know, I've become friends with a lot of the guys on the fan, you know, Craigie and all of them. So I've learned so much um, from all of them, really. And uh, I definitely use all that. And I definitely apply all of that into the work for sure. So before I let you go, just give us the context of this era for for rock and roll music, because today... It's kind of impossible to imagine deciding on what music is played based on the race of the artist. That just doesn't apply anymore. That's just not the currency anymore. But in the early fifties, it was. So that's the backdrop of of rock and roll, man. So describe that for us. Yeah, it's totally surreal to think that Little Little Richard wrote all these amazing songs, and you know, they were only essentially um, marketed to um, you know an underground audience. 
um, and and in areas where they would only play on the radio where, um, you know, African-American communities could hear. And then popular white artists would cover the songs and they would become humongous hits. You know, Pat Boone sold millions of records of Tutti Frutti doing this corny version of it. Um, and Little Richard was um, didn't didn't receive a penny for that. So we talk about that. We talk about um, all of those uh, exploitations and, um, you know, we celebrate the great moments, but we also really lean into the drama um, and, you know, it's a celebration of music, but it's, it's a heavy piece, man. We're dealing with an era that was unkind to so many of our friends and their families and communities. Um, this is a, this is a picture of Alan Freed. Um, so if you, mm. I, I really quite transformed myself in the show, um, head to toe and, um, our great director, Randy, he, he knows I like knickknacks and collectibles and stuff. He's always bringing me stuff. He, he got me a, a, a Salem, Ohio, 1941 yearbook. Wow. Alan Freed's high school no year, yearbook wow. from Ohio, where where it all started for him. You know, Cleveland, Ohio, the record rendezvous. Um, he was also persecuted because he was he was Jewish. You know, this is post-World War II. Um, so it's like, you can't be both Jewish and play black artists. This is not, this is just, no, this is a big no. And he said, you know what? F you, I'm doing it. And it became so big, they couldn't stop him. And, you know, that's when like J. Edgar Hoover and the government came after him, the Klan, everybody. And, you know, he kept it rolling. He was doing movies, TV, he came to New York, WABC. He was doing tours with, for the first time, um, desegregated audiences, black kids, white kids, you know, black artists, white artists on stage at the same time. He was doing movies with all of the above. N no one at this is before Dick Clark. This is this is before Elvis. He created the phrase rock and roll. And he popularized it. Now, he's no savior of like, you know, white savior or anything like that. He was a flawed guy. And I think that's what makes it really interesting, interesting in our in our show. So, so tickets are now available. This is going to yeah. premiere on June 21st. It is going to be in New York City. New World Stages, where I began Rock of Ages 15 summers ago oh, wow. um, before it became the global like hit and iconic title that it has um, ever since. Um, so we, we're, we're opening right in the heart of Broadway, right at West 50th and 8th Avenue, right here um, at New World Stages, uh, June 21st. We start previews um, shortly, just for a couple of weeks. Um, and then, yeah, definitely the plan is to run all summer into the fall through the end of the year and then transfer to like a big old theater, you know, but um, awesome. we'll see, you know, we're, we're excited. We have a great cast, Joey Pants, who's not here yet. We actually shared yeah. the dressing room, um, who you would know from the Sopranos, from That's the Matrix, right. from the Goonies, from Risky Business, just an iconic film actor. Um, he plays um, a great part in the show, actually two great parts. So rock and roll man the musical.com rock and roll man the musical.com great tickets available and uh yeah definitely hope to see you at the show um i think it's an awesome summer piece and um you know the city as you know it's safe it's beautiful uh walking around has been wonderful and there's nothing like you know the sun shining and you're walking into the theater and that the old smell of the place um it's good stuff man for sure one of the best nights that I could ever dream of is going to the city on a summer night, 
seeing a Broadway show, going out to dinner and drinks afterwards around the theater district and just soaking all of that up. I just love it. I, I find it amazing. Rock and roll man, the musical.com is a website for all the information as Constantine just described. It's a really cool storyline that they are bringing to life on Broadway. So check it out. It opens up on June the 21st. Constantine, if I ever get a full night's sleep here, I'm coming out to the theater to see this this summer, okay? So I appreciate so much that you took out the time as you're from your dressing room getting ready for all these rehearsals and everything, man. It means the world that you took time out for us. DA, no, please. It's my pleasure. And congratulations to you and your family. And, uh, you know, well, uh, yeah, we'll be here. So maybe maybe the Yanks will have a little playoff run and maybe, maybe we'll see you in the fall up at the stadium too. And then my Giants, forget about it. The league is on notice, okay? My Giants. about it. Yeah, you're really doing Jersey. My Giants are coming for everybody. Just, <laughs> just watch. I've been day one, Daniel Jones, number one guy. So that's my guy. And uh, we're excited about, you know, all that is uh, big blue as well. See, it goes uh, Giannis, uh, Mike Pellirulo, and then uh, Daniel Jones for Constantine. I think yeah. Oh, I love throwing an obscure Yankee in there. Wayne Tall. <laughs> Wayne Tolleson, oh, yeah. nice. Butch Weiniger. Well, look at that. Me- I did not expect Mel to hear Butch Weiniger today. Very nice. Very, very nice. This is awesome, brother. Thanks so much for doing it with us. Thanks, Damon. Appreciate, appreciate you having me. Many thanks to Constantine Maroulis for joining us here on New York Accent. Boy, that guy's just got so many experiences and so many cool stories and What a huge swing of a career to be able to be a rock and roll singer, then to be a Broadway actor, to have performed for American Idol and then gone on tour with a musical career, to be so good at acting, to earn a Tony Award nomination. I mean, the guy's done it all. And I loved, as you could tell, I love that he loves the Yankees so much. There's the role player that he feels so passionate about. When he, dro- when he drops a Mike Pagliarulo, I'm like, dude, now I know that you're in the club. Now I know that you care about the guys that many have never heard of or forgot very quickly. So a, a Pags reference on New York accent is, is very welcomed around here. So thanks to Constantine Maroulis for joining us on the show. You know, I mentioned on last week's podcast, I'm a new dad. And so our little AJ is about two weeks old now. And I found myself as I've pulled the overnight shift for feeding and diaper duties as daddy night care, I suppose, figuring out what I'm going to watch at night as I kind of keep my myself awake. And so I ended up watching the the Mets Hall of Fame speeches from the weekend where Gary Cohen, Howie Rose, and Howard Johnson and Al Leiter all got into the Mets Hall of Fame. And you want to talk about a degenerate, old school Mets fan in the middle of the night moment here. So how do you keep yourself awake at three in the morning? After the bottle is is fed and you're trying to burp them and, and just make sure that everything is okay, you watch about 45 minutes of speeches, every single one of them. You don't fast forward through any of them. And let me tell you, I loved Gary Cohen's. I loved them all, but I loved Gary Cohen's when he said, I'm one of you, just a kid from, from Queens sitting in the upper deck at Shea. I thought that really resonated. And I thought Al Leiter was outstanding. 
that Al was so enthusiastic. And I guess I didn't realize that his whole family had grown up Mets fans. And so he was great as well. And I just, and I love Howie and I love Hojo. So that was, that was really fun to watch. But after watching that and after watching Howard Johnson get in, you know, it reminded me that the guy was a 30-30 guy three different times, 87, 89, 91, three different 30-30 seasons for Hojo. And I said, you know, let me see if those old Mets video yearbooks that they run on SNY, especially during rain delays, if those are on YouTube. But I popped over to YouTube and sure enough, there was. And so I spent the night watching late 80s, early 90s Mets video yearbooks. That's right. Yeah, that was that was my night after the Hall of Fame speeches. And I particularly enjoyed the 1988 and 1990 video yearbooks. And look, this is going to sound really pathetic, like I'm totally stuck in the past. But that 88 team, I remember so fondly. And the loss of the Dodgers was just so heartbreaking in the NLCS. But that's a really fascinating team with Hernandez and Carter on their last breaths as members of the Mets. And the team started to go through the transition where they brought in Kevin McReynolds because they worried about Kevin Mitchell or the clubhouse or bad boys doing bad things or what have you. And, and McReynolds had a really good season that year, finished third of the National League MVP voting, but was never truly a Met. Nobody ever really embraced him. To then the 90 team that was left for dead and then went on a crazy run to try to catch the Pirates and nearly did, sweeping them at Shea late in the season only to fade down the stretch. And that was the Buddy Harrelson season where they fired Davey Johnson. And speaking of Pally Rulo and some of the Yankees players that you just heard Constantine mention, brought me back to how much I love Dave Magadan. Magadan exploded in 1990 when Mike Marshall, I guess, had friction with Davey Johnson, Marshall was brought in to be the first baseman after Hernandez, short-lived. Magadan takes over and just explodes. And Magadan's hitting RBIs at Wrigley Field as a six-RBI day. He kind of explodes onto the scene. He hits throughout the entire summer, and that kind of launched his career. And it just it made me remember a guy that maybe is is not going to be remembered by many and is never going to be in the Mets Hall of Fame and have a speech like that one day, but who was such a great natural hitter and just a good guy and a good teammate and just fit in so well. And I remember how much I loved a young Dave Magadan and used to pretend to be him playing wiffle ball, doing his stance, just that natural swing that Magadan had. I just remembered, boy, yeah, I, I love that guy. I love that guy. So maybe we can get him here on the on the New York Accent podcast at some point in time. But this is how you spend your nights when you're just trying to to kill time and stay awake and make sure the baby is fed and diapers changed and he's burped properly. So there's two of us burping in the middle of the night now. Okay, that'll do it for this episode of New York Accent. Thanks to executive producer Bryce Gelman on the project as always. You can catch me weekday mornings on CBS Sports Radio as the morning show on the network side of things. That's on Sirius XM channel 158 or streamed with the free Odyssey app. You can also catch me weekends on WFAN. And this podcast is available all places that you get your podcasts. So subscribe, rate, and review. That helps other people find it if you do leave a review. And you can always watch the podcasts on 
YouTube. They're available on the WFAN YouTube channel. Until next Tuesday, have a great rest of your week, everybody. This is New York Accent, an original Odyssey series.